First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. At the beginning of this month, some American troops landed in Somalia And if um, you've not been on another planet, (laughs) you've read about it or heard about it, they came to this little nation that most of us never heard about until the first of this month to bring uh, food to starving millions of people. Every week from five to 6,000 people die in Somalia of starvation or gunfire. And these troops are there to help bring about some um, food and some supplies to these destitute folks. The title, the name they gave their project was Operation Restore Hope. I think that most of us uh, can agree that we've just celebrated what was probably the original Operation Restore Hope. 2,000 years ago when Almighty God set foot on this planet Earth that that He might bring hope and recovery and life to the destitute of the world. That celebration's over and this week we'll take down this tree and we'll pack away the ornaments of the celebration and we'll get ready for one last party as we plan to, you know, as we celebrate the beginning of the new year. And we'll inaugurate a new president, which, who is coincidentally from Hope, Arkansas. And this man tells us that he will make those changes in our government that will renew faith in the future. And you'll not hear him say it, but I guess that his um, uh, administration, his four-year term could be labeled Operation Restore Hope. You've seen that word a lot and you will see it on television screens and in your newspaper. Operation Restore Hope. 
To, to talk about restoring hope is to suggest that hope can be lost and has been lost by millions of people in the world. And when you look into the eyes of these people, what you see on television, on your television screen, what you see is an emptiness and a hopelessness. Carl Menninger says that when it comes to hope, our shelves are empty. A number of years ago, a man, a minister, had a dream, a plan. He wanted to build a garden, a chapel, a place of prayer in his hometown of Covington, Kentucky. And he wanted this garden to be exactly like the Holy Land he had just visited. He knew that most of his people would never be able to go to the Holy Land, so he wanted to bring the Holy Land to them. And he set out on this project. Flowers and trees were brought from 24 different countries. A chapel was built. There was a carpenter shop with tools from the little village of Nazareth. He built an exact replica of the, of the garden tomb. And over this magnificent park, he built a beautiful statue of Jesus Christ. And he opened the doors to his garden. He called it, he called it the Garden of Hope. And he opened the doors to this place, expecting people to come. But from the very first, it met with difficulty. The trees and the flowers could not stand the harsh winters of Kentucky, and most of them died. And the people didn't come like he planned, and so bills began to pile up, bills that he couldn't pay. And after a little while, in 1959, he closed the doors to the Garden of Hope. For 21 years he dreamed and planned of having a place where people could come and celebrate the presence of God and had to close the doors to it. If you go there now, it's a mess. Weeds growing up everywhere. The chapel door is padlocked. Beer cans litter the area and the lovely statue of Christ is crumbling and falling down. Operation... Garden of Hope in Covington, Kentucky is closed forever. What a parable of life for many of us. Our gardens of hope are locked to us, it seems like, forever. There have been things that kind of kept us going, that made life worth living. Those things are past and gone. For some people, hope is lost. To talk about restoring hope is to suggest that hope can be misplaced, and it can. I'll not categorize in gory detail where people have placed their hopes. It seemed like that there was a euphoria in this country a couple of years ago as one by one communist country fell. It seemed like the whole world was in revolution to freedom. But what if every country in the world gained freedom like you and I enjoy? And what if every country in the world had a democracy exactly like ours, an exact replica of our democracy? What would it be? We're discovering, I think, it's beginning to dawn on us that if people place their hope in the world and in world events, we'll be terribly disappointed. A minister writes to Proclaim magazine that he was traveling from Atlanta to Los Angeles. 
When he boarded in Atlanta, there was a girl got on with her family. It was obviously that she was severely ill. In fact, they were taking her out to the West Coast for treatment of an incurable disease. He said they were about an hour out of Atlanta and this girl died. And he said, without, you know, even though they tried every way to, to revive her and bring her back, she died right on that airplane. He said, ironically, she was sitting in the midst, she was uh, in the midst of a group of people who were on their way to a holiday celebration in, the, in, in Hawaii, and they were drinking and laughing, and it kind of sobered them up, brought a little, uh, you know, quiet to their celebration. He said, when, they, uh, when she died, they decided to make an emergency stop in Dallas to get her off the plane, her body off the plane, and and make other arrangements. And he said everybody was sober and think it's sad, you know. This preacher went up to a stewardess on the airplane. He said, lady, he said, uh, I, I'm a minister and I work with this kind of thing all the time. He said, if I can be of any help, I'd be happy to. And the stewardess said, no, we've decided that we would serve everybody free drinks. That ought to make everybody happy. Is that the way we face the implications of a fallen world? Bottoms up, live, drink, and be merry. Sometimes it makes me sad when I see where we have placed our hope. And the question is, is there a hope to live by? Is there a hope that a person can place his life upon and, and find some fulfillment? Is there a hope for living? Well, the book of 1 Peter answers with a resounding yes. In fact, 1 Peter is called the epistle of hope. You need to understand that it was written to people who had every reason to have none. They were brutalized and persecuted. They had lost their jobs. And for the most part, these people were refugees separated from family and home. In fact, the man who wrote this epistle had to write it from the catacombs as he anticipated the crucifixion of his own, uh, bringing about his own death, a crucifixion upside down. And he writes this epistle of hope to say, there is a hope to live by. Our hope this morning is in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what this epistle says. It's not in some word of man or in some promise of man, but in the man, the person of Jesus. One day God called Abraham out of his tent and he said to Abraham, look into the sky and see the stars. And he looked there to see these stars glistening there like little flowers in dark meadows. And God told Abraham, I'm going to make you a seed as plentiful as the sand of the seashores. And I'm going to make it as glorious as these wonderful stars in the heavens. And the scripture says that Abraham believed God. Now he didn't believe the word or the promise of God. The bottom line is not, is the word believable? The bottom line is... Is the man who speaks the word believable? And he believed God. For what makes a promise trustworthy is the person who makes it. Our hope this morning is not in some 
promise or in some word, not even in just any man. If we place our hope in the man from Hope, Arkansas, we're going to be disappointed. Our hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead. Now the scripture says that these people had a hope that was made alive by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And his resurrection became the central point of their faith. And I remember what Killinger said about the woman he met down in East Texas when he was holding the Bible conference there. She came up to him and she said, I bet you didn't know what I was. He thought, well, since this is a Baptist Bible conference, she's probably a Church of Christ, you know, or a Catholic. He said, well, you probably were a Church of Christ. She said, oh, no, I was a professional gambler. She said, one time I lost $109,000 of one bet in Las Vegas. She said, I went out to Las Vegas and I was hitting it right. Said, I went to the card tables first and I graduated. Said, I came up to the roulette wheel and I had a pile of money, $109,000. And I had a feeling about the next roll of the dice. And I told my husband, I won't bet it all on that number. My husband tried to convince me not to, but she said, I pushed all my chips out on, put it on one number, and they rolled the dice, they spun the roulette wheel, and I lost it all, she said. She said, I came home from that, went to church a couple of weeks later, and for the first time in my life, I was introduced to a person named Jesus Christ. And she said, there in that service, I, told, I decided I was going to shove all my chips out and put them on him. And I told my husband after the service, I'm putting my trust, I'm betting my life on the person of Jesus Christ, resurrected from the dead. Our hope is not only in the person of Jesus Christ. Our hope is that there is redemption and trials now the grand people to whom this book was written were people who had a hope that even in the midst of temporary suffering they would experience joy and victory. For their hope did not remove them from life, neither from its suffering nor its demand. Christianity is not a cloistered faith. For our hope does not remove us from life. It sends us back into life with the same courage that Jesus had in his breast when he faced his own suffering and death. And our hope does not remove us from life. It sends us back into the dark experiences of life with the confidence that this darkness will not overcome. For what? kind of hope is it that fails at the, in the face of disappointment? And what kind of hope is it that shrinks when trials come? Gordon Kleiner tells about the, the family that uh, was going through the Great Depression. The father and the caregiver of that home died in the Great Depression. These left this woman with some small children. They didn't understand anything about the Great Depression, but they knew times were tough. And 
they could see the concern and the anxiety on their mother's face. So the oldest one of the group said to their mother one time, are we going to starve to death? She said, oh, no. See that tin box on that top shelf there? If it gets down to the roughest time, and we have to, we'll just use what's in that tin box. And so he said they all kind of braced and times got rougher and finally in the fear and the difficulty he approached her again and said, Mother, are we going to starve? She said, Oh, no, honey, don't you remember that tin box on the top shelf? He said, We don't know what was in the tin box, but we imagined it was all kinds of jewels and heirlooms and, and precious stones and we just knew that if something happens, that, that mother just take down the box and there'd be plenty for everybody. She said, after the, after the depression was over and this, these children got to be older and families of their own, they got together one Christmas and just kind of dawned on them. They never had found out what was in the box. So the mother went in to the top shelf and got down the box and opened it up and there was nothing in it. And they said, well, Mother, you deceived us. You lied to us. She said, oh, no, I didn't. I gave you hope. There is in the midst of suffering the hope that there is redemption in suffering. Now, there are those of us this morning who experience or are experiencing trials in life. We live by the hope that God will work in these things redemptively and that out of them will come some redemptive good and that we will learn from these trials. Ralph Erskine was on a bed of pain when he wrote, I've learned more of God on this bed than all the rest of my life put together. And Kagawa, that Pius, that piastic uh, believer of Japan who literally gave his life away to those who lived in the slums was going blind when he said, My darkness is a holy of holies, for in my darkness I've met God face to face. What do we learn in our suffering? Well, we learn the, the impact and the importance of prayer. Crushed to our knees. We discover the value of prayer. What do we learn from our sufferings? What is there redemptively in our, to, find, to find in our sufferings? Well, we learn what is of, of greatest value. We learn that things that are really important cannot be bought with money. I wish you could have been here Wednesday night. And in this room here that was lit, lighted only by candlelight, we talked about Christmas past and some of our people began to share. What I observed in this testimony time here in this wonderful setting of Christmas was that most of the people who shared about the greatest experiences of their life at Christmas time were experiences they they had when they were when there was trouble or trial or suffering. Do you know what that, Ed? 
One young lady said that the greatest Christmas she ever spent was a Christmas that one time when her brother was dying in the hospital and he, they'd spent all their money for bills. They had no money to exchange gifts at Christmas, didn't have a thing. He got to come home from the hospital unexpectedly at Christmas time and she said, I never will forget that. What a blessing that was. And what we talked about here was is that when it comes down to the bottom line, the most important things in life are not things that you buy at a store. Shaquille O'Neal, you've heard that name. He's the number one pick of the NBA draft. He signed a $40 million contract and he's, he's earning every penny of it. In fact, um, when they had a first test of him against Patrick Ewing of the New York Knicks, those of you who are not basketball fans are saying, what's he talking about? Well, Shaquille O'Neal is this huge giant of a man. He, he, uh, he's averaging 25 points a game and 16 rebounds, and he's worth $40 million. After the game in which he went up against Patrick Ewing, who is another giant place for the Knicks, did real well in the game. The reporters were out talking to him about it. And one of the reporters said to him, he said, I, I noticed that, you know, you never get excited, you never show any emotion, anything like that. And Patrick Ewing said, no, nothing really ever really excites me much. He said, about the only time I ever get excited is when my mother puts her arms around me and says, Shaquille, I love you. He said, now that excites me. Here's a man who has $40 million and he's riding the crest of popular opinion and what he treasures most is a mother's love. And so a man stands up to preach to preachers at a baccalaureate service and instead of getting to the, to the you know, regular baccalaureate service, he has crisp $1 bills uh, bought from the bank and he hands them out to every graduating uh, senior from the seminary each one of them receives one of these crisp $1 bills and he gets up and he talks about the rich young ruler and he says, gentlemen, I want you to take this crisp $1 bill and I want you to put it in a frame and put it in your office and every time you look at it, I want you to remember the man who because of the power of the dollar missed life's greatest opportunity. I know that I speak for everybody here this morning to say that the things you cherish the most are the things that happen to you with regard to family and friends in the most difficult of your lifetime. There is redemption in trials. There is one last hope, place of hope from this text. It is this. Our hope is in the triumphant return of the Lord Jesus Christ to earth. Now when he talks about in this text the revelation of Jesus Christ at the last day, he's talking about that which kept alive this New Testament church. And what kept them alive in the midst of all of their suffering and all of the difficulties that existed was that they anticipated and expected to see Jesus right around the next corner. And they believed that Jesus Christ was coming, imminently 
returning to the earth and that he would re restore life, he would resurrect hope that when Jesus returned, everything would be all right. For that church is no different from this church. It lives in the anticipation of the return of Jesus. Emil Brunner said that what oxygen is to the lungs is this hope to life. One twentieth of this New Testament is, uh, deals with the second coming of Jesus. There are over 300 references in the New Testament alone to the return of Christ to earth. 23 out of the 27 books in the New Testament refer to the second coming of Jesus. It pulsed in their life. It beat in their heart. Jesus is coming back. We can endure one more day. Jesus is coming back. We can make the best of life because when He comes, He'll restore. We'll restore the kingdom. William Churchill's favorite American song was the battle hymn of the Republic, which begins with this stirring phrase, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The great creeds of the church teach that Jesus is coming back. The Nicene Creed states, He shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. Charles Wesley wrote 7,000 hymns. In five of them, he refers to the second coming of Jesus. In 5,000 of them. And when Elizabeth II was crowned Queen of England, the Archbishop of Canterbury laid the crown on her head with this sure pronouncement, I give thee, O Sovereign Queen, this crown to wear until he who reserves the right to wear it returns again. And Jesus taught us to be ready. In his last sermon, he gave the parable of the wise and foolish bridesmaids. Five of them had their oil and were waiting for the bridegroom to return, and five were at the store getting oil. And then he told the parable about three men who had bags of money. Two of them invested, and one dug a hole and buried it. And the emphasis of those parables is the fact that Jesus is, the Master is returning. We need to be ready. And we need to be faithful. I've quoted this um, old Negro song before. Hear it again, please. There's a king and a captain high who is coming by and by, and he'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. You will hear his legions charging in the thunders of the sky, and he'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. When he comes, when he comes, 
All the dead will rise in answer to his drums while the stars of his encampment fire the firmament on high and the heavens are rolled asunder when he comes. There's a man they thrust aside who was tortured till he died and he'll find me whole and cotton when he comes. He was hated and rejected he was scourged and crucified, and he'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. When he comes, when he comes, he'll be ringed with saints and angels when he comes, and they'll be shouting out, Hosanna to the man that men denied. And he'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. Our hope this morning is that he's coming again. And when he comes, he expects us to be found faithful. Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray for that person this morning who has lost or misplaced his hope that he'll come to know Jesus Christ, the object of a living hope, resurrected from the dead. And I pray for that one this morning who, who feels alone and a failure, useless, to understand that in these struggles and trials of life there is redemption, things to learn. And I pray, Lord, for those of us who are unfaithful, that we'll recommit ourselves to a faithful ministry in light of the sure return of Christ. Place our faith in Him and upon Him today. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Now there are three invitations this morning. Invite you to come and place your faith in Jesus Christ. It's a misplaced faith if it's in a church membership or in good works. Place your faith this morning upon Him, on Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to come today and join this fellowship of believers or to come to rededicate yourself to the Lord Jesus. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.